chapter 6. I said last time, and let me reiterate, that sometimes the wisest individual that you'll meet is that person who is willing to say, I don't know, instead of always being the one that has an answer. <clears throat> I use a number of different individuals for my studies, whether those studies I see online, uh, on YouTube, uh, I see on the internet with different sermons, I listen to on Spotify or um, other things available, or the books that I have in my library. And as I've shared with this group before, um, one of the things that, that I greatly appreciate is what one old acquaintance of mine referred to as the old guys. Pastor Bill, you have an interest in the old guys. Why is that? And he pointed to my library. And what he really meant was not just the old guys, what he really meant were the dead guys, the ones that are already gone to glory. And I said, because too many people in church history at some point were faithful, and then at some point else in their career abandoned God. And I referred to two or three that were presently living as he and I were speaking. Well, one of the old guys who, in fact, is one of the, those who have gone to be with the Lord was an individual by the name of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the pastor of Westminster Chapel. And again, before we go any further, for those that might be listening to this on Spotify, um, we are a small congregation known as Shepherd's Chapel. We meet in southeastern Pennsylvania on a weekly basis. Uh, we also are available on YouTube under Shepherd's Chapel, presently Shepherd's Chapel, Bill Rudolph, but for branding purposes that will begin changing and everything will be under Shepherd's Chapel NW. But back to my point. <clears throat> As I picked up this one particular book in preparing this series of sermons on Romans chapter 6, I was impressed as the words of the commentary began when Lloyd-Jones was writing in his introduction. He says this, One Sunday evening at the close of a service at Westminster Chapel, somewhere about 1943, a certain well-known preacher came into my vestry and said to me, Doctor, when are you going to preach a series of expository sermons on the epistle to the Romans? I answered immediately, when I have really understood chapter 6. Now, what he then proceeds to say later on was he had been studying chapter 6 for a number of years and had not come to any conclusions. But the fact that somebody who is regarded by many 
as a giant in Christendom in the 20th century to say that he was not even going to begin a series of sermons on chapter or on, on uh, the, the whole epistle until he understood chapter 6, he realized that chapter 6 is complicated. And it's complicated because it creates a divide, at least what seems like a divide, between what we call justification, how is a person right with God, and sanctification, the necessity of holy living. You can't have one without the other. Now that's important to say because the last 50 to 75 years within the Christian church, particularly in America, but throughout other parts of the world, notably in Europe as well, there's been this disconnect that somehow a person can be saved, have Jesus as Savior, but not have Jesus as Lord. And the problem with that is that's not biblical. That's simply not biblical. If Jesus is Savior, then Jesus is Lord. If Jesus isn't your Lord, then quite frankly, dear friends, he's not your Savior, regardless of what you say. That doesn't mean that we follow him perfectly. The best Christian does not. But does it mean that we follow him with an attitude that is markedly different from when we were not Christians to when we became Christians? And the answer would be emphatically yes. Well, Lloyd-Jones eventually got to a place where not only did he comfortably understand Romans chapter 6, he did a massive commentary series on all of Romans, 13 volumes in length. One particular volume alone was on chapter 6. And he spent, I believe, seven or eight months just preaching through Romans chapter 6. He spent, I believe, eight or nine years preaching through the entire book of Romans. He was a thorough individual. He was an interesting individual in that the first part of his career, he was a medical doctor. And about his early to mid-30s, he then became a pastor and eventually was asked to, to uh, succeed um, G. Campbell Morgan at Westminster Chapel, which he did in London. Well, I say all of that because, again, we need to think differently than what we normally think. So I want to begin by taking you all the way back again to the Garden of Eden. And I want you to think biblically, and that may mean that you need to change your thinking that you came in here with tonight. All right? Along these lines. God gave Adam and Eve one commandment. What was that commandment? They could eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden except for one. The one tree that they could not eat from was from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
They broke that commandment, but prior to them doing that, God said these words. In the day that you eat, you will die. Now, here's where you need to change your thinking. How many of you have known somebody who's died? How many of you have ever been to a funeral? How many of you have ever seen somebody in an open casket? How many of you have ever seen a death scene on television? We all have, and most of us are raising our hands with each of these questions. But when we think of death, we think of death like that. And what God was saying was not that. See, we need, if we understand chapter 5 and 6 here, we need to understand what really took place in the Garden of Eden. Because here's what happened. In the day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they died. Because the Bible talks of death this way. In each of the circumstances that I referred to, knowing somebody who's passed away, been to a funeral, open casket, death scene on TV, and so forth, we're thinking of what? We're thinking of this, aren't we? We're thinking of a physical body that's ceasing to breathe, heart that's ceasing to beat, arms and legs that are ceasing to move, and God is saying, primarily, death is not that. Death, primarily, is separation from me and a true knowledge of me. Everybody got that? Yes. So here we are in the Garden of Eden, Two people standing, talking with God. God has promised them in the day that you eat, if you eat, you're going to die. They died. They died. They were still moving around. They were still talking to him. They were still talking to one another. They had children together. They were vanquished from the garden. But spiritually, they were dead. And unless God did the chasing, and unless God went after them, they were not going to be seeking God. They were not going to be interested in God. They were not going to worship the true God. They were going to worship something that was the figment of their imagination. And every single person coming into the world since then has been born spiritually dead with one exception. And that one exception is Jesus. But I say that because throughout the New Testament, and particularly the Apostle Luke or the Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans refers to a two-word phrase, a person being in Christ. 
Now, we want to say in Christ contrasted with being in Adam. You were born into this world in Adam. Prior to being a Christian, you were in Adam. In a place of death, a child who deserved God's intense anger to be poured out on you. And that continued throughout your life until such a point where God the Holy Spirit changed you, if he in fact has changed you, and given you what the Bible calls the new birth. And as a result, now go from a place of death to a place of life. In fact, Jesus talks about it this way in John chapter 5. He says, those who believe in him, here are the words, has crossed over to that place of life. Now, all of this is important that we understand and that we begin in Romans chapter 6 because Paul is going to make the argument throughout this chapter for those that have picked up on the very end of chapter 5, you know, if sin abounds, then grace much more abounds, then why don't I just keep sinning in order that grace would abound? God wants to forgive me that much. Doesn't it bring that much more glory to him if I just keep on sinning? And Paul is saying, if that's your understanding, then you don't understand what's changed. You're no longer in Adam. Oh, but I continue to sin. You're no longer in Adam. And when he uses words like, your citizenship is in heaven, he's not saying your citizenship will be in heaven or that you've been risen with Christ. He's not saying, you know, I hope and you hope that we'll all be risen with Christ. He's using words and he's using tenses. Listen carefully to this. And this is why Lloyd-Jones was so hung up on chapter 6. The Bible teaches, the original language teaches, that these things have been accomplished already at the cross and when you first believed. That your citizenship is in heaven, if you're a Christian, present tense. That you, in fact, are a spiritual alien here on earth, that you're not going to feel at home here, nor should you, that sin is going to continue to be this like raging animal in you, wanting to just play itself out. But Paul is making the argument, these are not hope-so things, these are accomplished things that have taken place so when Margaret became a believer, as far as God was concerned, Sister Margaret was no longer in Adam, even though she's a child of Adam, physically speaking. She has moved, she has crossed over and gone from being in Adam to being in Christ. 
And that's why if she or anyone else that's a Christian wants to raise the argument and say, well, I ought to just continue sinning so that God can forgive me and show me his glory. No, no, you can't. You need to regard what has happened as a real past tense event in order to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's still the hand and glove effect. For example, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What's the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying essentially the same thing. If in fact God has saved you, then in fact you will be working by God's grace and in his power, always relying on him, never taking credit for yourself of being a holy man or a woman. Not excusing yourself when you sin. Whether your sins are small or, or big. Because there's the recognition that my life is no longer here. My life is secure. And why is it secure? Because I've been raised with Christ. And just as Christ is seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father, so is the believer. Again, not a hopeful picture, a reality picture. Not something that will happen, something that has happened and will ultimately be fulfilled, but has already taken place now, brothers and sisters, for those of you who I'm speaking to who are Christians. These are real events that have taken place. And Lloyd-Jones, when he wrestled through this and understood the ramifications, most commentators don't take this position. Most commentators talk as if these things are hopeful events that will occur. And Lloyd-Jones was saying the problem with that, if you look at the, 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 the book, if you look at what the book says, the original writing is not in English, it is in Greek. And the tenses that he is using in the Greek are saying that these are past events. They are not something that will happen. They are something that have happened for the believer and ought to give the believer hope and encouragement. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And here's the person who says, How have I died to sin? You've died to sin in Christ. Christ took those sins, as it were, and nailed them to the cross. Let me read from Colossians exactly what the apostle is saying there. Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Again, not will make you alive, hope to make you alive. 
made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public, public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There were things going on behind the scenes. There were things that were happening supernaturally. There were things that were happening invisibly. And your sins and mine, if you were a believer, or at some point a person becomes a believer, that was happening for each of those individuals and those who have come before us. But again, listen to the words. God made you alive in a way that most people on planet Earth today are not. Most people today on planet Earth are spiritually dead. If Jesus comes today, heaven help the masses. Heaven help the masses. You know, when they see, and I don't know how he will appear, but they, you know, hear, hear the voice of the archangel and they hear the last trumpet. I, my guess, from the way I read the Bible, it's not going to be something that people are wondering, what's that? They're going to know. They're going to know exactly what it is. And they're going to know to their horror if they know anything about the scriptures. Or they're going to rudely find out. But Paul wants to make it clear that to the individual who's a believer, there is no added glory by you just keep on sinning so that God can be forgiven. Historically, there's a term that um, such thinking leads to, and that term, and I'll just say it, you won't remember it, but I'll say it nonetheless. It's called antinomianism. And what antinomianism means is without law or lawlessness. An individual says, well, you know, if the law is simply to bring more, uh, more glory to God by showing me my sin, and then God forgives me my sin, why don't I just keep on sinning? You're telling me that I'm under grace and that I'm not under the law. The law doesn't matter. The law does matter. But the law doesn't matter so that you can think that you're going to keep the law. Here's the individual. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times as I've presented the gospel from time to time over the years to different people. And they'll say something like this. Well, I, I try to be a good dad. Or, you know, I know I'm not the perfect wife. Or, you know, I know I'm, I, I could be doing better as a business partner. And what they're doing is they're, they're, they're comparing themselves either to themselves or they're comparing themselves to, to someone else, but they're not comparing themselves to God. God is saying, you've got to be perfect. And the person saying, well, God knows I can't really be perfect, so God understands, and, I, and I'm better than most of the people in my cul-de-sac. And they figure that somehow that's good enough. Well, the person who's an antinomian says, if God is going to forgive me, and as a result of that forgiveness, enjoys more and more glory, 
then what I'll do is I'll just live on, without the law. And, and Paul's point is, no, you don't understand. There's a connection between justification, being right with God, and sanctification, being holy before God, that go like this together. And if a person is right with God and has been forgiven by God, then what do they do? They obey God, and how do they demonstrate they obey God? By being aware of what the law is and then obeying the law. Not to make themselves right with God, but demonstrating as a result of their love for God. There's a difference. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So, again, Paul's point here primarily is, is this. He wants his readers, in this case, his hearers, to understand that if you're in Christ, you're no longer in Adam. So you don't get to point to somebody else here and you say, well, I know they're not a believer and, and you know, you're telling me that my life is to be different. Yeah, I am. I'm telling you your life is to be different. My life is to be different. Well, how different? Uh, this different. God says, how should I start out tomorrow? The same way I should have started out today. But now I'm making all of you consciously aware of it in a way that I didn't for myself this morning. But I'll make all of us consciously aware of it. Tomorrow when we wake up, how are we to live? If we're really Christians. This way, Jesus says, if anyone comes after me, what do you have to do? You have to deny yourself. Well, what does that mean? That means very simply, you know how years ago there was the marketing slogan about doing your own thing? Everybody remember that? Can't be that old. Maybe I am that old. All right. Do your own thing. I don't know who it was. Was it was it Nike or you know, or what, what was it Nike about doing your own thing? You get up in the morning. If you're a Christian, what am I to do today? Do Jesus thing. What's Jesus thing? Whatever Jesus wants you to do. Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, you know the commandments. Yeah, I guess I do. You mean the Ten Commandments, Jesus? No, the two greatest commandments. Oh, you mean the one that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and, and strength? Yes, that one. Well, Lord, you know I can't do that one perfectly. Yeah, but that's the commandment. That's what you're to do. And the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments rest all the law and the prophets. In other words, if you keep those two commandments... You're good. Problem is, if you're a sinner, you can't. But if you're a Christian, that should be the goal. That should be the goal. Several times when I've been in different churches, I've preached using an illustration that goes like this. I, I would ask the audience, how many of you make lists in terms of what you're going to do today? And the hands would go up and, you know, oftentimes it would be, you know, either the, the person who's working at home or, you know, the business owner or any number of people. You know, some people just like their checklists. And, and I'd say, okay, everybody with me? Let's all pretend we're going to make a, a list tomorrow, right? You get up in the morning. What are the things you have to do? 
and you start thinking, and I'd, add, I'd call on people, and they'd say, oh, i got to pay the mortgage. Yep. What else? Oh, i got to go grocery shopping. Yep. What else? Got to drop off the kids at daycare. What else? Got to pick up the kids after daycare and take them to, you know, music practice or dance lessons. Okay, what else? Well, my, my husband and I are meeting the banker later on because we're remortgaging the house. And they give this whole list of things. And I'd say, okay. At some point, I'd stop them and say, you missed the first and the second most important ones. And, and then people would, you know, try some more. Well, I, I need to love my wife, a husband would say. Uh, I need to love my, my husband, a wife would say. Kids would say, oh, I, I need to be better kids. Parents would say, we need to be better parents. And then I would say again, you're missing the first two important ones. And then I'd stop and I'd say this. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Number three, pay the mortgage, take out the trash, go to the gas station, go grocery shopping. And people would get it. Because what has happened is, and I see it constantly at Lamb, all the time with staff, too often, too often, not just here, but in a lot of places, a lot of businesses, there's such an emphasis on the urgent that sometimes we're forgetting on the important. We're so caught up in the moment that we think something is urgent where it's not nearly as urgent as the importance of doing something the right way, with the right attitude, with the right tone, and so forth. That can be a staff issue. That can also be a resident issue. I encounter it always Monday morning. People that I haven't seen since Wednesdays, because I'm off Wednesday night, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, come back Sunday, and people will see me either Sunday. If they don't see me Sunday, they'll see me on Monday. And they'll walk right up to me. They haven't seen me for days. They're usually very polite, and they'll say something like this. Pastor Bill, I, I want a cigarette. Pastor Bill, I need you to get me some coffee. Pastor Bill this, or, or, you know, they won't even use Pastor Bill. They'll just talk at me. And I'll say, eh, let's start again. Uh, what do you mean? Why are you waving your hand? And I'll start them again, and I'll say, let's try that one again. It goes like this. Hi, Pastor Bill, how are you? It's good to see you. Uh, when you have time, can you get me a cigarette? See... We're a lot like that with God. And we read these words, and we're not thinking about the words that we're reading. And Paul wants us to understand who he's talking to. He's talking to people that sin was reigning in us. 
sin had a chokehold on us. Jesus says, he who, is, he who practices sin is the slave of sin. I was talking to somebody earlier today, and he honestly was able to say to me that he doesn't think that he's really good at manners. And under different circumstances, I might have agreed with him. But because he said it in such a humble way, I just let him talk. But he's absolutely right. To which my response instead was, that's something that you can change, but you need to change it by practicing better manners. And so it is, you've practiced all your life. In fact, you've become an expert in the same way that I've become an expert at sinning. Nobody, nobody needs to show us how to sin now, do they? I mean, sin is as natural as tying our shoes. Somebody says a crossword, and what do you do? You say a crossword back. You know, somebody that we esteem an enemy, you know, we want to cross swords with them. And Jesus says, love your enemies. We've had a bad day. You know, we want to make sure that we get to the front of the line first so we scurry across the parking lot for some event. And Jesus is saying, esteem others better than yourself. And we don't like that. And he's saying, listen, you've died to sin. All the important stuff of life I've taken care of in a way that you could never have taken care of. And now all I want from you is, as long as you're here, as long as I continue to give you life, I want you and you and you and you to be the best representatives of me to a world that is dying in their sin. And they're blind. They're never going to pick up the Bible. They're never going to read ultimate questions that you give them a copy of. They're never going to come to Shepherd's Chapel. They're never going to tune into, Mod or into Spotify. They're never going to go on YouTube and watch Shepherd's Chapel or anything else that's good and gospel-worthy on YouTube. But they're going to see you. And they're going to see how you act because you call yourself a Christian. So they may never read any of the books you encourage them. They may never come here. They may never watch a good Christian movie on TV. But they're going to see how a Christian acts and whether or not Jesus really is the real deal in that person's life. Now, if you're sitting here and taking this to heart, I hope you go out here today resolving by God's grace to be the best Christian you can be for the rest of your life. Again, not perfect. You're not going to be perfect. You're going to fail miserably. I'm going to fail miserably. Every day, every week. There are going to be times that people point fingers and say, I, I probably get it. 
I don't know how many times, I'll say anywhere between a, a half a dozen to a dozen times a year from lamb residents. Haven't, haven't had it in a while from a lamb staff person, but have from time to time with a, a lamb resident, and it goes something like this. You call yourself a Christian. Some pastor you are. You're the chaplain at Lamb Foundation? I've had family members do that with me too, whether in person or over the phone. And what they mean by that is they're not getting their way and they're unhappy with me. And they think that I should just cave in or they think that I should just agree with them where all I'm doing is pushing back and saying, listen, you know, what you're asking we can't do or we won't do. Or, you know, I'm in contact with you because we've been having difficulties with one of your loved ones. Or, yeah, I'm jumping in here because it's you and this resident together and we're going to get this resolved. And they want me to act a certain way. And when I don't, then they call me on the carpet and say that I really probably am not a Christian. You know, I never walk away from those situations questioning whether or not I'm a Christian. I may question whether or not I did it the right way, and there have been times that I've had to go back to different people and apologize for the way I handled something, but I don't go away thinking I may not be a Christian. Why? Because I don't do it on a regular basis. I don't do it as something that's practiced. It's those things that arise from time to time, often in the heat of a moment where it could have been handled better, and you know what I'm talking about. But we'll continue with this as we go through Romans 6. I doubt that we'll take as long as Martine Lloyd-Jones did. But nevertheless, you know, we'll take our time. The goal is to get it and get it straight. And uh, by God's grace, hope to do that.